I was living alone in London and I couldn't get a job. In fact, I was unemployed for a year. But I think throughout that cycle, it was all about just trying different things and continuing to add on to your skill set and to stay positive because at some point somebody out there is going to take a chance. Imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> Moving from industry to industry, you're not going to be an expert. But naming that imposter syndrome and understanding that everybody else gets it helps kind of ground me knowing that, you know, we're all in this together. We as product designers should ask ourselves, what are the absolute worst ways that this product could be used? What's up everybody, I'm Guo, and you're listening to the Not Just Pixel Show. There's a lot to learn as a designer, so in this show I sit down with design professionals to understand how to grow as a designer and help you get that UX design internship or job. Let's get into it. Today, I'm talking to Alicia Warren. Alicia is currently the Product Design Director at Rippling, an all-in-one HR and IT platform. Before Rippling, she was a UX lead at J.P. Morgan Chase. In addition, she's an adjunct professor at Columbia College Chicago, teaching experience design and design operations. On top of all these, she's a city co-organizer for Ladies That UX, a welcoming community promoting women in UX. When I first saw Alicia's profile, what stood out to me was her diverse work experience in an array of industries such as academia, higher education, and more. But her road to product design was not easy. As you heard in the beginning, in her early days, she was once unemployed for a full year. And seeing where she is now as a director of product design, her journey has been nothing but inspirational. During our conversation, we delved into a variety of topics, such as imposter syndrome, the impact of working in different industries, ethical design, and so much more. I really appreciated the vulnerability Alicia showed during this chat, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. And also, Alicia told me post-interview that Rippling is actually planning to hire new grad designers and interns towards the beginning of next year. So definitely check out the job board link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alicia Warren. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Super excited for this one. So over your career, you have worked in a variety of industries and just to name a few, academia, higher education, insurance, pharmacy, finance, and now you're in a IT product company. So my first question is, how have you working in these different industry helped you grow as a designer or as a design leader? And maybe when you're talking about this question, you can maybe point to examples that you learned in specific industries. Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing about um, hopping around from industry to industry is that you'll never be an expert in that particular industry. In fact, you're probably going to be there with the least amount of knowledge out of anybody because a lot of people have worked in those industries for years. So companies like CVS Health, J.P. Morgan Chase, Walmart, they've all had a lot of really great 
knowledge um, that has been there for you know 20 odd years. But you know when you're going in as a designer, you have a set of skills that is specific to what they need as well. Uh, they hired you for a specific reason. And so they want you to be able to dig in to who that user is, who that customer is, to really start to build product in a, in a certain way. And um, that's a skill and an expertise that they don't necessarily have. And I think that's really when you can hone into that those skills and to grow in your craft, particularly as you're industry hopping. So I think in uh, starting out in higher education and academia, um, I think just understanding the way that people learn and consume information was really important for me uh, throughout my career because I was able to see a different facet of their brains and how they interpret information. And now we kind of think of that as um, cognitive load or like just being able to dig in from like an understanding of the brain. And then moving over into um, insurance, I think it was more about really interesting to dig into contextual inquiry there because we're, we're dealing with more physical products as opposed to um, these intellectual products that you have when you're working with uh, higher education and academia. So I was able to sit in the car with a lot of my roadside assistance drivers and I was able to see what do they think about when they're changing a tire on the, uh, on the side of the road? And what is it like um, when you're waiting for a job? There's quite a lot of downtime that a person's just sitting in their car. And what do they do during that time? What devices do they have? What's the ergonomics of them picking up these devices? Um, and that was quite a shift, again, from like the ergonomics of being in school mm-hmm. and um, kind of sitting back with with your computer in a library or, you know, in a, in a dark room. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after doing that for several years, um, I started to do a bit of industry hopping to much greater extent. So I dipped my toes into finance with JP Morgan Chase more recently. There, I was looking more at the IT side of things. So I worked in the chief technology office and um, the breadth of what I was doing was so significant there compared to any of the other organizations. Um, We're looking at 250,000 employees as opposed to maybe 5,000 or 1,000 in higher education and academia. So I think there it was more about working with that breadth and understanding how your impact as a designer works across the board, but also how how do you get a lot of people mm-hmm. aligned on a particular idea? Um, so I, um, you know, before was a sole designer working in higher education and academia, um, UX team of one, as it's often called. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, with Chase, you're looking at 100 people at a single problem. So how do you get them aligned to that idea that you've got? And, you know, maybe 50 other people had the same idea. So you've got to talk to them and understand that particular angle and then figure out a 
plan of action to move forward. And I think this was for me, when you asked the question about how my career changed and how I started to dip my toes into uh, being a design leader, that was really a huge change, a pivotal changing point within my career because I had to work with so many people and it wasn't necessarily just about myself and what I felt was good for the product. It's, you know, let's now look at all the ideas. Let's test things quickly. Let's kill ideas quickly and let's move forward quickly. And um, that was quite a different mindset from my experience as an individual contributor. No, I love that. I have I have so many follow-ups. I was just like taking notes along the side. I think, I think the first thing that I wanted to kind of delve into a little bit deeper is the first point that you made, which was the feeling of not being an expert in all these different new industries. How do you cope with that feeling and how do you how do you adjust and start to feel more comfortable in a new position? Yeah. You know, I think one of the interesting things about this industry is how emotionally intelligent and aware a lot of the designers are just because we study psychology in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> Moving from industry to industry, you're not going to be an expert. But one of the things that I encountered in my career was a manager of mine who actually just recently passed away. Um, he was very vocal about attending therapy and being cognizant of imposter syndrome. And he brought an expert in psychology in to speak to all the designers at Allstate. And one thing that I took away from that was to just name that there's imposter syndrome. Everybody gets it and you get it throughout your entire career. Um, I get it now, even being a director of design where I am, it's you know a very different industry. People can see me in a much greater breadth than they could at Chase where it was just myself with these 250,000 people. Um, everything I do is a lot more visible. So I even get that imposter syndrome now, but naming that imposter syndrome and understanding that everybody else gets it helps kind of ground me knowing that, you know, we're all in this together, that they've been in uh, other people that I'm working with have been in the, that same position, having that imposter syndrome before. And once you name it, you can kind of package it up and move it to the side and move on. Because it's like, why am I feeling nervous about this? Why am I not really um, uh, like so confident going into this particular talk? Um, well, naming that imposter syndrome and just being able to say, okay, it is this that I'm feeling helps you then kind of understand what you need to do next to be able to move on from that. But we do all get it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting to hear someone that, like based in, in terms of career, I guess, like we're like miles apart away. And it's really interesting to see that like even at like different levels, imposter syndrome is always present. And I think you, you brought up a great point, which is that acknowledging, you know, I have imposter syndrome and, you know, I can start to like even maybe like detach myself from, from it or even like um, try to think of ways to try to combat that. I think that's always the, the first step. Yeah, I had this um, friend in high school 
and uh, I recently, more recently, had met up with her for a drink, and mm. she said, "Alicia, remember when we were in high school and we were like, okay, this this is the worst. Everything is sucks. Our parents won't let us do anything. I just want to get to college." And when we get to college, everything is going to be great because we're going to be free and um, we're going to get to do whatever we want. But when you get to college, then you realize I can't pay for anything because <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm a broke college student. And mm -hmm. then it's like, okay, well, I can't wait to get my first job because when I get my first job, I'm going to get a paycheck and I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And then you get your first job, you get those paychecks and you're like, wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I need more money. I need to yeah. be able to do more. Um, and it's a the continuous cycle. And that just makes right. me feel um, in, in a similar way of the imposter syndrome. It's like we're, we're always, you know, wanting more and to take that next step. And um, I think just acknowledging that has really helped me to take that step back and to understand that that this is just a journey and that we can we can take it slow. You worked at so many different industries. I'm wondering maybe for people who are interested in one of these array of industries, when you were working there, what were some of the challenges that you faced that is probably more industry specific um, that's related to like design work or like collaborating? in those industries? Hmm. You know, I think the interesting thing is that a lot of uh, companies that I've worked for are um, at different points in mm. their UX maturity. And um, so a, a lot of times you going into those different places would have to be advocating for UX. And that spans everywhere from higher education to academia, um, insurance, pharmacy, finance. They were all at kind of varying levels. And so there was a lot of education that was built into what I was doing um, and a lot of empathy for where people were coming from. Because as I mentioned before, those people had been working for these companies for like years. And so they do have this deep rooted knowledge of how these industries worked. And I mm -hmm. needed that as a designer coming in, I needed to lean on that to know how to design different solutions. But at the same time, there was a bit of uh, process education, like what does it mean to actually do that design work? Um, so it's not mm -hmm. just I deliver the designs and we're done. In fact, in some cases, I've even gone in more recently to just say, I'm going to do something quick and dirty, and then we can move on to taking people along on the full design process. And what ends up happening is that becomes a really messy process because there's still all these questions that you need to answer to be able to even do something quick and dirty, uh, uh, quote, unquote. So I guess in companies that... I guess has a lower level of design maturity, a role of a designer is also maybe in a broader sense, like an educator of the design process itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you're you're doing that through every step of your work, not just the design process as you're kind of kicking off a project, say, but also as you're communicating your design work, right? It's like, 
I'm showing you what I've done, but I'm also communicating these underlying principles that I've used to do that design work, right? Like Dan Brown's principles of IA come to mind and uh, just understanding that a lot of your users are not coming through that front door. A lot of them are coming through at different angles all throughout that product life cycle. And so how can you best support? And so that may be a reason that you've chosen to do some of the uh, screens a specific way. I think on a slight tangent in terms of being an educator, this is pulling away from work a little bit. So I know that you're currently an adjunct professor at Columbia College Chicago, um, taking on also as a educator role, but now in this case, more of a professor in a college. So I think for the listeners, tell us more about uh, your role as a professor and what do you currently teach? Yeah. So I have historically been teaching interaction design and experience design, um, kind of these base level courses. But more recently, I had pitched to Columbia that it would be great if we were prepping our students a little bit more for that first job out in the real world. Um, And this is kind of based off of some of the things that I've experienced and watched some of um, my mentees experience, but also as a hiring manager, seeing some of those people take that first step out as a designer and seeing them fumble a little bit. um, I wish I could give them some tools that Mm -hmm. they could use to succeed uh, Mm -hmm. getting that first step out. So I pitched to them uh, doing something called design ops. And this may be not correctly named, but the Mm -hmm. idea was to be able to teach students about how to understand how the organization is designed and how that organizational design then translates into design maturity. So if I know that the organization, for example, is quite big, that there are different pillars in that organization, Mm -hmm. um, that it's been around for a very long time, that maybe it's got a matrix type organization and their design maturity may be um, all over the place because it's so big, they're going to need to have different design teams. Knowing that maturity isn't quite there, you may know that your job at the end of the day is going to be more about education and less about doing the design work. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, if you're working at somewhere that's a little bit newer, that's mm-hmm. um embraced some of these startup principles, like Facebook, for example, I don't know if this is true or not anymore, uh, Mm -hmm. but they did at one point have a team that was specific to the like button. And so you know that your slice of that world is going to be much smaller, but that you're going to have a lot of support with other designers along the way. And so that maturity is much further along than perhaps an organization that's much older that doesn't have um, that those UX designers embedded within the process. So how can you use the, that information to help you make decisions about where you take your first step in your career so that it's not just, I'm taking that first job that is offered to me. Um, let's let's figure out what would be a good fit for me. No, I love that. And I think in terms of like finding a job that fits 
I think I'm I'm starting to realize a phenomenon, which is at a startup, you normally it's a, the process is a little bit messier, but you get to work on multiple things at once. Like as a designer, you wear multiple hats, but mm-hmm. as you get to larger companies, maybe with higher UX maturity, you start to get a smaller slice of the pie in terms of the project and also the product they're working on. But as you mentioned, there's a lot more support on the project itself. So I'm curious, would you recommend designers going either direction or um, I guess just based on your experience, like what has worked? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's a one size fits all answer to that question because each person is different. Um, if you think about how you played when you were a child, I went off and I did multiple things. Like I played with Legos, I drew, um, I went and went to friends' houses, played video games. Um, I did anything and everything. And I attended multiple clubs when I was in school. And so for me, being able to tap into multiple things is something that I really love. And knowing that I look for positions that are widespread, that allow me to do, uh, wear multiple hats and to dig into different parts of my skill sets and to kind of push those boundaries. But there, there are people that um, you know, may prefer working in one space. You know, they played with mostly video games as a, as a child and want to really dig into the engineering aspect or um, this aspect. Maybe they only drew. Maybe you went to school um, for specifically for design and did figure drawing. Um, you learned about color, topography, and you really like this kind of graphic design route. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, you should yeah. go this way or this mm-hmm. way, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it all depends on you and your history and like what makes you tick as mm-hmm. a person and as a designer. So I think really figuring that out about yourself that's a really nice way to be able to understand, okay, what is going to be a good fit for me? Then you can use that to your advantage as you're starting to have those first conversations with your recruiters, um, with your hiring managers to kind of suss out, okay, how much room do I have to experiment? Am I going to be able to work on one project at a time or um, am I going to have to work on five to six projects at a time? And that's, there's no right or wrong about that. Mm-hmm. It's more mm-hmm. personal preference. And then when you have that personal preference, you can understand how you might flourish in a particular organization. Transitioning a little bit, I know that currently you're working at Rippling. And for the listeners, Rippling is a human resource management company that offers an all-in-one platform to help manage HR and IT operations. And what I wanted to delve into is in terms of career ladder, I think I mentioned this earlier in our conversation is that I'm just an intern. I'm like miles away from you. I wanted to understand what it's like to be in your position in your career. So I think on a broader level, I'm imagining 
So you're currently the director of product design over there. Imagine, imagining in terms of responsibilities, there's a lot less hands-on work, like an individual contributor, a lot of strategy sessions, and setting the design direction for the company as a whole. Are these fair assumptions? And how would you describe your responsibilities as the director of product design at Rippling? Yeah, good question. And I, I think that as I've seen my own career progress from that um, project manager or uh, you know, first step out as a UX designer, laddering up to senior product designer, um, lead product designer, uh, all the way up to director now, there, you're right, there is a lot less hands-on work, although I do really love uh, just rolling up my sleeves and doing a bit of pairing time with mm-hmm. um, some of my teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by pairing time is like, hey, let's you've got a problem, let's work on it together. And I'm not going to tell you in particular what the solution is, but let's explore different options for this solution and we can talk about why this works or why it doesn't work. And that kind of helps people that I'm working with see from different angles and kind of stretch um, their brain in different ways because they're able to see what's what's in my head. But there's also what I would say a three-point plan. I always have a three-point plan. <laughs> so um, I consider what is it like to get our own house in order? So the design team at Rippling, I want to make sure that um, we've got some strong standard operating procedures. Um, I want to make sure that there's a good culture that's not just driven by me, that's driven by the team that you know are in the day-to-day. So what I mean by design culture is bringing in those different ideas and conversations from uh, the field but also um, that tone of like a fun, friendly culture that people can rely each uh, rely on each other for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can reach out to Caitlin or um, Brian or anybody who's who, who are part of my team to work through a problem, um, but also like sit back and play among us or mm-hmm. grab a drink after work. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be all so serious where um, we're just focusing on work. And as we have kind of transitioned to less in-person and Mm -hmm. more like hybrid remote working now, those moments are really important to just be able to sit back and get to know who you're working with because it humanizes the things that you're doing. On that same page, it's like, I've seen a lot of designers who work with other designers and tear them down or just get into the design and they point out everything that's wrong with the design. And that person may not have necessarily known the history of how that design got put together, the political circumstances of like this PM um, and this, you know, sales opportunity. They they don't necessarily know all of that. So um, how can we make sure that this is a fun, friendly culture so that people are supported and it's not about tearing the design down, but getting them excited and getting them armed with mm-hmm. that all that they need for those next few steps in their design. I love that. It's like, it kind of goes back to design ops a little bit. It's, it's like, how do you make sure the design team 
is able to put out their best work, but also when they're not doing that, they can also have fun and enjoy their time at the company. And funny enough, in my internship, like we have a design operation lead and then she's actually hosting a hot pot social for all the design team members. Oh, how cool. Yeah, so that'll be, and it's kind of funny how that happened because it was actually doing our design all hands. Someone was giving a presentation. I think she was trying to say hotspot, but she accidentally said hot pot. And then, and then everybody heard it. And then they were like, oh, I want to eat hot pot. And the design operation lead was there too. So she was like, oh, actually, we can turn this into reality. And then so today we're going we're, we're gonna to have the dinner, which is really interesting. Oh, my God. I love that. I'm going to steal yeah. that. I'm going to San Francisco <laughs> in um, the, the middle of August. So mm. I'm going to steal that. We're going to go to hot pot. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I haven't had hot pot for a while now so i'm sure it'll be a great time um i wanted to transition into another theme i know this is a theme that i don't think is at least for me i i've heard of it before but i do want to understand more about it as a designer and the theme is ethical design so i think to the listeners can you explain what ethical design is and when did it come to your awareness yeah. Um, so when I think about ethics and design, it's not necessarily um, something that people kind of think about as a, a at the forefront of what designers do. So I kind of think about it in two realms. Um, one of them is uh, what I call paternalism. And that is how much are we making decisions for our users that kind of force them to do things in a way that they may not have chosen to do. Um, So an example of this might be, I think we've all kind of been using Instagram or Mm -hmm. social media at some point, and we've been talking about something out loud. And we've realized that as we go back to our social media, that there's an ad showing, please buy this thing that I uh, just talked about, but I'd never done a search for it or anything like that. And, you know, the Instagram is now saying, we're not listening to you, that this is just part of the AI algorithms that we use by proximity um, and by your search history that allow us to understand and predict what is coming up. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, when did we as Mm -hmm. users sign up to be part of that use of AI? And did we understand that that's how our search history would be used? Um, And so these are kind of the meaty questions that we as designers need to kind of dig into when we think about ethics. Paternalism is definitely this spectrum, so it's not so obvious in some cases, um, but it is obvious in others. The other realm of ethics is like, you think about contingency design and where you're designing for something that you definitely have to make a protection for your constituents about. So I think about like a hacksaw. If you're using an automatic hacksaw, you definitely need to build in a protection for your user that if it comes towards a finger, that it's going to stop and protect that finger from being cut off. And this may be a spectrum as well. Um, I've actually heard instances of Nest 
um, Mm -hmm. being used in cases of domestic abuse and violence. And so this is kind of like a way of using a product that nobody would have ever thought of. So we as product designers should ask ourselves, what are the absolute worst ways that this product could be used? And um, if we think about Nest again, so the way that this product had been used was a spouse had been at home and they had been um, you know, realizing, oh my God, it's so hot in here. They're trying to figure out like what happened? Why is it so hot? I'm going crazy. Like it can't be so hot. The air conditioner is on. We have this like new great technology and come to find out the nest was turned up to a hundred degrees. And the spouse went to her, her spouse and said, Hey, why'd you turn up the nest to a hundred degrees? You know, we both have Mm. access to be able to, to shift it. And, um, this, the husband started gaslighting his his wife and saying, you know, I didn't do anything to the nest. You must not know how to use technology. Like, why would I turn it up to 100 degrees? And if we think about that, part of the reason he was able to do that was because there's no logs on nest for who did, it, you know, who, who made changes. Um, and so if we just brought something forward, like, uh, a timestamp and who is changed by, we might be able to combat some of those things. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting part because I we do have a nest at home, and I, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> like that was, uh, I guess in that case, I don't know if exactly if that's an intentional decision to not add timestamps or I guess like a record. In that case, I think at the moment I. I can't really think of a specific reason that they wouldn't want to add that. Yeah, and you think about the way that a lot of startups or organizations are run today, it's like we're using agile and lean methodologies. So we're trying to solve a problem, a particular problem, and we might not necessarily think about all the edge cases that we might have to encounter or the ways that, you know, this might be used for, you know, different purposes. So that's okay. That's okay that we don't get them. It's more about as we mature as a product, as we mature as Nest, how do we build in those things to, like a log to be able to protect our constituents? Yeah. And I think the question that you brought up earlier, like what is the worst possible case of using this product? I think that's such a good way of putting it because I feel like there's just so many products out there that are being used in just such like unexpected ways. That is sometimes when when you think about oh then, I guess who's responsible for this? Um, you can't particularly blame everything on the creator itself because like, I guess they didn't really expect that to be the use. Yeah, yeah. You know, interestingly, I was reading the opposite case though that mm-hmm. there are some products out there that were designed for evil, um, and the treadmill, for example. <laughs> Mm-hmm. was like have you ever felt that it's just this torture device that is like making you run in like a hamster wheel and yeah that's actually the yeah, case it was used for a, as a torture device in britain in like the 1800s oh wow oh, i didn't know that okay yeah i i think I, from this point i'll start leaning towards running outside then actually using, <laughs> using a treadmill that's super interesting because i didn't know that i guess the only thing is that you can I guess stop 
any treadmill that I'm currently using. I don't know if it's any different, I guess, from the torture device that was used in Britain before. But I think that's an interesting perspective. We're coming a little bit short on time. I wanted to ask this final question. It's a question that I ask every guest that comes on the show, which is, imagine in you, you're in a scenario where you're now facing yourself but 20 years old, so around college times. What career slash life advice will you give her at this moment? Yeah, you know, um, my own journey into design was not easy. And I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. I majored in political science, which is not where I landed. Mm -hmm. Um, And even after getting my master's degree in publishing studies, um, I was living alone in London and I couldn't get a job. In fact, I was unemployed for a year. But I think throughout that cycle, it was all about just trying different things and continuing to add on to your skill set and to stay positive because at some point somebody out there is going to take a chance like they took a chance on me and i I didn't do that just lying down though um i did quite a few internships um with the national gallery with fight and press um with source books and i did all of those you know for almost for free um Mm. and so i think if i were looking back on myself i would you know, say, hey, it's it's not going to be an easy road, but stay positive. And we'll um, eventually, you'll get that person that will take a chance on you. Um, just keep trying and just keep talking to people. And eventually the cards will, will come into play for you. Mm, no, love that. Yeah. And I think it's especially seeing your current position now and knowing that you started from a position where you were unemployed for a year. I think that transition mm-hmm. is super inspir- inspirational. And I think another thing to note is that you also mentioned that you you weren't like laying in bed. You were actively doing internships, like doing projects. And that reminds me of some, I think it was, it, it was like a story. It was like along the lines of like a person is on this highway and then his tire broke down. And instead of just waiting for people to, like, come to help him, he started, like, pushing the car. And then mm-hmm. when he started to do that, other people saw him trying to make the effort. And then so other people came to help him, like, move the car and then try to think of different ways. So I think my whole point is that during those other years, you did make the effort to try to, like, go out of your way to, like, do design work and, like, show other people that you can, like, do this work, basically. Yeah, I love that. Um, and and when when you do start, that people will help. For sure. But yeah, Alicia, thank you so much for your time today. I feel like we can go on for um, another like 15 minutes or, or so, but I know yeah. you're short on time. So <laughs> yeah, I think we'll end it right here. But yeah, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your time. And again, before we say goodbye, my name is Guo, and you've just listened to the Not Just Pixel Show, and I'll see you in the next episode.